Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Was a friend of mine on murder. Judges gavel fell. Steve Albini is a world-renowned recording engineer and the owner and one operator of the amazing electrical audio recording facility in Chicago, Illinois. He's also one of three singers and one of one electric guitarists in Shellac, one of the most significant and influential underground rock bands of the past 25 years. Steve and I had a conversation recently to reflect upon the year 2018, which included significant milestones like the 20th anniversary of Touch and Go Records releasing the Shellac album, Terraform, his wife Heather Wynne's inspiring and successful efforts to help local impoverished people via her organization Poverty Alleviation Chicago and the annual Letters to Santa program. We talked about how it's been a very busy year for Steve as an engineer at Electrical Audio. That time he won over $100,000 at the World Series of Poker. How the Democratic Party's recent blue wave may help America turn a political corner the 25th anniversary of Nirvana releasing their final album, In Utero, and what Steve recalls about recording Kurt Cobain's vocals. We also talked a lot about guitar playing and St. Vincent and ACDC's Malcolm Young. We talked about exciting plans for Shellac's next batch of new songs, plus forthcoming compilations of early and obscure material, and maybe we talked about a few other things, too. I think Cheap Trick came up at least twice. With the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash creative control, plus in-kind support from CFRU 93.3 FM, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, this is the 453rd episode of Creative Control featuring the great Steve Albini with your host, me, Vish Khanna.
Hi, Steve. How's it going? Great, Vish. Nice to hear from you. Nice to hear from you. I, uh, I understand. I just read something here that uh, you were at the Wiener's Circle in Chicago recently. and I, I That's wonder, true. What was that all about? The Wiener Circle in Chicago is a sort of a legendary local institution. It's a hot dog stand where that is in an area that is frequented by obnoxious drunk people. <laughs> uh-huh. So as a partly as a defense mechanism, the staff there have developed an extremely rude bedside manner. And the sort of queen bee of Wiener Circle is goes by the name Poochie, and she is well, I've called her the Aretha Franklin of, of shade. Um, <laughs> she manages to cut to the quick of every single patron uh, and deliver all manner of insults and aggression, almost all of it sexual in, in nature. And she has an incredible lust for life and a very sharp wit. And so she, she agreed to host me and Jeff Garland and Jeff Tweedy as temporary employees so that we could participate in the camaraderie and the rudeness at Wiener Circle in an effort to raise money for charity. Yeah, now this, cha- this this Wiener Circle place, I believe, has gained some infamy because it was profiled, I believe it was on the Conan O'Brien show. I feel like I can recall Triumph the Insult comic dog going yeah, there. He, is, that, is, this, is, that, is that true? Yes, and uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a local institution, and the... And it has developed into a kind of a, a, a must-visit for Chicago tourists. And almost everybody that goes there can't believe they can get away with it. So it's, it's, it, it was nice to see it from the inside. Now, were there any particular insult highlights for you mm. that come to mind? I saw, I saw a clip of, uh, of Jeff Tweedy saying, Step the fuck up, which I thought was yeah. funny. Anything else uh, come to mind? I, I didn't have that much time in the box. I worked in the I worked on the line mostly. Like I, I was mostly getting berated by the staff. I'd, and I and I don't know how many of my insults actually made it on camera. The, the whole thing was filmed, and there there may be a little short made of it at some point. But I think the top one for me was uh, a, a guy showed up with a beard, uh, just a sort of typical, you know, contemporary facial hair, the crappy too long goatee and a little mustache. (laughs) And uh, I asked him where his floor Tom was and and he looked puzzled. And I said, well, I assume you're in the imagined dragons. (laughs) And that was, that's as good as I got really. That's not bad. That's pretty good. (laughs) Well, that's great. That's uh, it sounds, and it was for charity. So it was all for a good cause. Yeah. It raised money for the poverty alleviation, Chicago uh, charity, which is the, umbrella organization that runs the Letters to Santa charity drive that my wife and I have worked on for 20 plus years. Yeah, I want to ask you more about that in a bit. I realize we just jumped in. I I didn't ask you how you were. It was rude of me, uncharacteristically rude of a Canadian to not say, how are you doing? How are you doing, Steve? Um, I must be fine, right? I mean, it's Everything is the same as it always is, <laughs> and it was it was fine last time, so it must be still fine. Still fine. That's that's yeah. actually good to hear. Uh, I want to reflect a little bit upon the year that was from a few different angles, and I want to begin with uh, you are as we're speaking. You're at Electrical Audio. I'm curious, were you particularly busy recording bands in the year 2018? 2018 was a, a stupidly busy year for me, actually. 
I don't know that there's any significance to it, but you know, like anything else, things go and you have good years and bad years. 2018, I worked my balls off. Uh, I was nonstop in the studio making records. My band did a little more touring than we had in previous years. And uh, I had a lot of other personal stuff to deal with, like just personal uh, projects and things that I wanted to that I wanted to do. Yeah, well, that's striking to me because I, as as you may know, I talk to all sorts of musicians. They're on many different levels. Some of them are suggesting that it's actually more difficult than ever to live viable lives by making and selling records. Uh, other people have pontificated about how there's a a precipitous decline in the popularity of guitar-oriented rock music. And I just thought, since I have you, it sounds like it was the opposite, but I just wonder, in your role as an engineer, have you well, seen any evidence of this? Well, you said you made, you made a couple of, there are a couple of very important, but quickly glossed over um, qualifiers in your statement. You said it was, you know, it's difficult to make a living by making and selling records. And that's absolutely true. People don't buy records very much anymore. It is absolutely possible, and I believe it is easier now than ever to have a viable existence as a musician. The main difference being that when you are a musician and that that's your your life, you may also be doing other things, and those things will probably be providing your livelihood. Right. Other jobs, so to speak. Right. But previously, but that that's always been true. Mm -hmm. But um, previously, when that was true, it was more difficult for the musical side to gain any purchase or to get any expression. And now the, the musical projects, basically anyone can have a mu musical project and can find a, a venue for it, whether that's a, you know, live performance or uh, band camp or a YouTube page or, you know, a, a, any of those sorts of things. I hesitate to mention Facebook because Facebook is sort of betraying itself as a particularly evil player in the in the information economy. But I do think that having a sustaining existence as a musician is now easier than it has ever been. And that, I think, is why studios like ours that cater to independent musicians who are, you know, not ashamed of the fact that they're not associated with a corporate entity – um, like those people need a place to go to, to make records. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can do kind of a lot on your own, uh, especially in fields like electronic music and sort of synthetic pop music. And, you know, you can do an quite a lot without a studio. And there are even collaborative venues where you can share files with people who can then collaborate with you remotely. Like I just recently worked on a record with a singer who had done the bulk of her recording for her album was done by correspondence. She did a sort of demo versions of her material and then advertised, I guess it's the way to, to put it, looking for musicians to play on it. Mm -hmm. And people heard her material and said, yeah, I'd like to play on that. I'd like to collaborate with you. And so then she would set, she sent her files to these people and they serially added drums and electric guitar to her demos, sent them back to her. She added more refinement and more production to them. And then she mixed it as a proper record, having, having never met or even physically spoken to her band members. Right. 
you know, and, and that sort of collaboration is actually facilitated by all of the things that people think are somehow limiting human interaction these days, like hmm. things like social media and electronic communication and things like that. Those, those make that sort of collaboration easier. They facilitate it. Um, and, but those are the very things that are sometimes criticized for isolating or insulating people from each other. And I, I think that that's, you know, just a fundamentally incorrect reading that you hear a lot of people complaining that, you know, people of the plugged in generation, they're, they spend all of their time on their phones and they're not interacting with the people around them. Right. I mean, the, the obvious flaw in that thinking is that what they're interacting with, what what they're doing on their phone is interacting with people, you know? Well, I, I hope I didn't, I wasn't making that uh, distinction uh, or argument in any way. I, I'm just uh, relaying to you what I've been hearing from people as yeah. I talk to them. Uh, I, I think, well, the loudest voices of complaint uh, regarding the way the music scene has developed in the internet era, the loudest voices of complaint are from people who had sort of established rocking chair careers, meaning they did a bunch of stuff and they were collecting royalties on it and they just presumed that that would continue indefinitely and that that's how they would live the rest of their lives is sitting in their rocking chair collecting royalties yeah when that got interrupted by the change in consumption that meant that people were no longer required to purchase physical items in order to, to listen to music then those people felt like the world had unfairly changed around them. Sure, yeah. And they now they had to go back to work. But then there are people who have adapted well to that environment, even legacy artists that have adapted to that new environment. The band Cheap Trick, for example, have an, an incredible, rigorous touring schedule. They're still recording new music and still releasing new music, but they realize that, you know, where their bread and butter is that they are a phenomenal live act and they use their enormous history and their enormous archive of recorded and video material to sustain the enthusiasm about them in their fan base. And so they still, you know, they play 200 shows a year and they make as much money as they ever have. And that that's the sort of thing that I think is is a perfectly valid adaptation. And then you have things like Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates did a, um, a video series where he invited people into his house. Oh, yeah, and yeah. They, yeah, I saw that on TV, actually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's a way that a guy can just have, have some people over for dinner and have a jam session and, and turn that into uh, a program that's then, you know, has its own intrinsic value. And all of these little ad adaptations that people make to the change in economy I mean, they're they're inevitable. We're all going to have to make these adaptations, and I I just don't see the point in railing against it. I just don't I don't see the point in stamping my feet and complaining that things are not the way they were back when I liked them better. You sure, know? and I should say, I mean, you you've cited a couple of legacy artists. You're speaking from the perspective of someone who's had uh, a long go at it yourself. I guess I'm talking more about younger artists that I speak with who are. You know, hey, I got my stuff up on Spotify and Apple, and they sent me the royalties. Holy Lord. I, yeah. I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Like, I, I thought this would work out. I mean, a million streams, 45 bucks, that's not good. That can't be good. Well, well literally no one should expect that streaming ser services are going to be their principal source of income. Hmm. I mean, if you have that expectation going into it, 
it's a mistaken expectation. Um, but for a minute, let me go into a little deeper digression into that figure that you just threw out. Sure. Um, you said a million plays was worth 45 bucks. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm making that up a little bit, but I think that's what someone said. Something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. And I'll just, I'll just, uh, let's just take that number as a realistic number and say, yeah, that's, that's sure. real. That, sure. that matter. That counts. Okay. So that mil, a million people hearing your song. And I don't know that that's even necessarily that they heard the song. Maybe <laughs> that song came on in the in their stream and they hit the next button because they hated it right but it sure. still read sure right <laughs> so like who who knows what that means on a like a literal on a on a on a on a factual level or maybe you know they were out of the room and the phone kept playing you know like there's there's no way of knowing exactly what was going on but let's just assume that that one million people meant that one million people actively chose to listen to that piece of music and that you were paid 45 bucks for that right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's roughly equivalent to a major market radio station playing a song one time at peak listening sure okay right in one city on the planet oh you're meaning, saying that you'd reach one million people the same way in a major market if the song is played on the radio once once but like back back in the era of the radio back when people listened to the radio and there was radio sure but that would mean also that the whole rest of the world was deaf to it and the whole rest of the world didn't hear it hmm. so i think being you know i think people are making these sort of false correlations between a million plays while if you compare that to a million album sales yes of course it's going to seem preposterous and the the payback is going to seem ridiculous but if you compare it to an analog that actually correlates with the same number of impressions on individual listeners it makes a lot more sense and in order for something like a worldwide radio smash would be played you know several times an hour in every radio market in the world right so hundreds of millions of people would hear it. I mean, that's the equivalency that we'd be needing uh, in, a, in a streaming environment in order to correlate with a, a hit record. That's a fascinating would, point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, so I think the, the more important thing, the more significant thing is not that the amount of money you're paid by these streaming services is small. And I agree that it's small and that, they are not viable as a as a means of supporting musicians, but that these streaming services are clearly a stopgap measure. They are clearly a, a means for an existing industry to wring a little bit more money out of a changing listening paradigm. Mm -hmm. And when that change is complete, and these streaming services are no longer necessary then the revenue from them will drop to zero and all of them will go out of business and everyone will decry that in the same way that they're decrying the change in the record business where they'll say, Oh, I remember back when I was on Spotify, you know, I could get a million plays and I'd get 45 bucks for that. And now people are listening to my music and I'm getting nothing. Right. You know? Right. So these are going to be somebody's halcyon days, <laughs> you know, mark my words, when the spot streaming services are all outmoded by some autonomous, you know, listener bot that you have on your phone that <laughs> that 
trolls the entire internet and finds whatever you want to listen to and plays it to you for free. Yeah. Like then, and the streaming services are then irrelevant that then somebody is going to complain. Some executive who used to have a position at Spotify is going to complain that he no longer has a job because of the way streaming services have been made obsolete. I think all of these changes in technology are number one, inevitable and number two, provide easier access to music for people who like music and that can ultimately only be good for people who want to make music yeah i feel like this argument gets rehashed every <laughs> every quarter century or so well when I, a, like i say I, I i talk to musicians all the time and so this yeah. has just been a recurring uh, theme among younger artists who yeah they've got a I mean, like you say, for a lot of musicians, it was the case. You'd keep some other, you had a a job and then you would make music. Uh, and, exactly. And you would figure out a way that the two would kind of inform each other in some ways or at least support one another, uh, support your creative expression, and then allow you to pay some bills. It, I mean, I guess significantly it used to be that when I when I was a teenager and I first got started into music, the expectation was was that you would have a crappy job if you were going to be on tour at all yeah. because you'd you'd need a job that you could quit on the spot right mm -hmm. so that you could quit and go on tour and then come back and get another crappy job the ease with which music has now been like sort of integrated into all technological platforms means that now you can have any kind of a job you can have a great job and still make music on the side yeah you know you can have a very demanding job and still have a few hours in the evening to work on something at home on your laptop yeah you don't you know i, I and your band can exist in the ether uh you know a quite healthy existence without you guys ever having to drop everything and go to the practice space and, and practice together you know i i just feel like there are there are fundamental advantages to the way things have been decoupled from the physical world that people who are prone to nostalgia or or people con generally conservative people are are poor at appreciating right okay i mean that those that those are all like i say that's a fascinating perspective the one thing i had raised initially that i don't know that we totally spoke to although you cited a couple of rock bands uh, who'd mm. adapted, but I did mention the fact that there is this feeling that guitar-oriented rock music is also on the decline. It doesn't occupy uh, the the place of power, or uh, um, um, it's just not as omnipresent as it once was. Yeah, that sounds fine to me because most of the omnipresent guitar music was pretty terrible. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if that, you know, if if I never have to hear, uh, you know an era when Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses dominated public consumption of music again. Well, that's fine with me. Yeah. I mean, that, that music was awful and I'm glad it's gone. But I also feel like that, you know, just picking an instrument, guitar, there is some extraordinary and innovative music being made right now. You have people like St. Vincent, for example, mm -hmm. like Annie Clark has incorporated guitar into an abstraction of pop music that I think is, totally unique she reminds me of nobody as much as annette peacock i don't know if you're familiar with annette sure. peacock yeah I, I yeah i interviewed annette peacock once yeah yeah and i i think that her approach to guitar is absolutely as a guitarist and not as some kind of a 
a person who's denying the fundamental aspects of guitar that make it useful or interesting. She is a virtuoso on guitar and her taste as a guitar player, I think is exceptional. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's an example of, you wouldn't think of her music as guitar music because the way it's typically presented, you know, she's a personality, she's very stylish. The music is generally presented in a way that it sort of competes theatrically with other pop music. But if you just listen to it, uh, there's a lot of really interesting guitar playing on it. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And as I, as me- if memory serves, I believe uh, she's a fan of yours. Uh, I remember that uh, Michael Azarad, for his book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, had put together some kind of um, concert in New York. And, and so everyone did sort of interpretations of bands that were profiled in the book. And, and uh, St. Vincent uh, performed some big black songs, if I recall. Does that, re- does that resonate with you? That's true. But I also think that that was you know, more of an occasional thing that she, she wanted to participate in that occasion. And so that was the opportunity there, but I, you you don't feel that she's a necessarily a fan. Well, sure. I I don't want to, I have never spoken to her about it. I don't, I don't want to presume, but I think more importantly, she has an eclectic taste. And if you listen to her talk about her inspirations as, as a guitar player and stuff, it ranges from, somewhat conventional blues and rock stuff to like she she can do 20 minutes on her love for pantera for example right uh and i i think all of that stuff imbues her performance and her thinking with what is undeniably the presence of rock guitar in a music that you wouldn't ordinarily associate with rock guitar so i i, I and also i mean there are other people who are who are using guitar in its natural place in a band where it's sort of fulfilling the, the driving energetic mid range of a band, uh, but doing it in ways that are unexpected. Like I'm going to, I just saw a show by dead rider, the Chicago band. And again, their records are quite abstracted and um, every single show I've seen by that band has been fundamentally different in some way from the previous one. Mm-hmm. And I just I feel like this searching, aggressively experimental nature expresses itself in a lot of different ways. And I, I admire that approach and using guitar as an instrument to express that I don't think is any less meaningful now than it was 20 years ago. I, I do agree that if you're going to be threadbare run-of-the-mill standard rock band you will have less of an uh, of an automatic <laughs> audience now than you would have in the previous 20 years but that i'm also fine with that what you're saying is that the mundane middle no longer has an institutional support and i'm fine with that yeah yeah i suppose that is the subtext of what i'm saying i just yeah it does there's no Anyway, we could go on about it. I feel like the the age of the rock star too uh, is is done, uh, and the the stars of music fine with that. That fine with that too. I figured you might say yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate your perspective on that because I always uh, think of you as someone who um, has innovated with the guitar. Uh, your the guitar sounds that you've come up with are not like anyone else's guitar sounds. It seems to be something you you thought about. You know, I'm not going to make my guitar sound like everyone else's guitar. Well, not so much in opposition to everybody else, although there was an element of that in the beginning, but it's it's more that I I have a fairly limited skill set. And so I'm I'm trying to extract the most out of my fairly limited skill set. I'm not uh I'm not a deep thinker about music in a theoretical sense. Yeah. And I'm 
uh, I don't have virtuoso technique and I don't have the time to, to develop it or the inclination to develop it. So I'm very much in keeping with the sort of the foundational principles of punk rock, which are that you take what you have at hand and you try to make the most of it. And in my case, that means if I can't play blinding licks, for example, um, <laughs> And if, and if my musical thinking is not sophisticated enough to break new ground harmonically, um, I, at a minimum, I can avoid doing something embarrassing. At a minimum, I can, you know, stop playing now and again. Yeah, or, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and w some of my inspirations have been people who took a fairly limited approach or, or fairly restricted approach and maximized its impact. Someone like Malcolm Young. Who played partial bar chords for for forty years and always sounded fantastic? <laughs> yeah, because what was important about his guitar playing wasn't the particular notes he was playing, but his rhythmic sense and his uh, sense of the excitement of emphasis of different parts of the of the bar, and his willingness to stop playing now and again and let his brother take a solo, for example. Yeah, there's this is I mean this this might be going too far down the rhythm guitar rabbit hole, but <laughs> there's a, a thing that's unique to ACDC that I think sort of encapsulates the brilliance of Malcolm Young as a guitar player. His riffs define all of their music. Like any ACDC song fundamentally is a repetition of one of Malcolm Young's riffs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the, the, the shape of the music comes from Malcolm Young's arrangement of those riffs, right? Mm -hmm. So that's basically the whole the whole show is Malcolm Young. Now, when there's a moment in a song where there's going to be an instrumental passage and Angus is going to do a lead, the paradigm breaks briefly from the two of them playing rhythm guitar to Angus Young playing a lead. And in almost in ninety nine percent of rock band technique or rock band practice, when you get to that moment in the song where the vocals go away and the guitar solo comes in and one of the rhythm guitars stops playing rhythm guitar, the impulse there in almost every band is to add a second guitar to fill in the rhythm under when Angus shifts from playing rhythm guitar to playing lead guitar. Yeah. Uh, you don't want a void there. So you add a second guitar so that the makeup of the band would be the same, two rhythm guitar players, and then you just have the, the lead vocal replaced by the lead guitar, right? That's a such a stock move, it's, it goes by unnoticed sure. in almost every rock record production, right? Yeah. In the songs that Malcolm Young arranged for ACDC, the exact opposite happens. The lead vocal goes away, Angus Young stops playing rhythm guitar and starts playing lead guitar, and Malcolm Young stops playing leaving a complete void behind the lead guitar. Hmm. It, when you notice that effect, when you realize that that's what's happening, it's startling. Like th this is supposed to be like a big moment in the song. And what they did was make the arrangement more sparse to focus the attention on the lead elements and on the rhythm section. Huh. What that does is it leaves room such that when Angus goes back to playing rhythm guitar and Malcolm rejoins the band playing rhythm guitar, 
you have a kind of a leap in intensity at the end of an intense moment. And that's an arrangement trick. It's, a, it's, in, it's incredibly simple. And it's also very easy because it means that you just you, you have to do nothing for a little while. But most rock musicians are afraid or ashamed to do nothing. <laughs> well, this explains, <laughs> this informs some of your, your stopping. I've often wondered about that. I hadn't yeah. really pondered that. That's very fascinating. Um, and I had a conversation about this with Todd Rittman is the guitar player in uh, Dead Rider. He's the he's sort of the the brains behind Dead Rider. Mm -hmm. Previously, he was in a band called U.S. Maple. Right. And I remember having a conversation with him and Al Johnson, who was the singer from U.S. Maple, about the sparseness of U.S. Maple's music. U.S. Maple was a rock band, but they had, you know, sort of yawning gaps in their performance where there would be nobody playing or very little music would be played. And we talked about Malcolm Young and his use of, of emptiness and how we all of us admired it. And I think that kind of subtlety about guitar playing is more influential than people who are looking at it from a technical perspective give it credit for being. Like if you read guitar magazines or or back when there were magazines or when you see people talking about their influences you know it's always about the playing it's never about the part where nobody plays right of course <laughs> but if you but there are you know there are there are a lot of people who are influenced by the silence on those records and and uh i appreciate it and i know that todd does so yeah not playing is a kind of playing yeah <laughs> Uh, we ostensibly were talking about your work as an engineer when we got into all of this, and I have one more question that occurred to me recently. A couple months back, I was asked to play drums on a record by a friend, and he put the band together basically over like Facebook Messenger, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we convened, we happened to convene at a recording studio to practice and play songs together, and it all went really well. And then on the last day, the owner and operator of the studio, he set up uh, room mics. He wanted to make like a reference recording of what we'd worked out. And I noticed uh, a change in the mood right away. And it made me think of a person who does what you do, because I think it's fair to presume you work with musicians in really heightened states, like uh, excitement, joy, but also uh, a fair amount of stress, tension about the process. I'm curious, do you often encounter anxiety as an engineer? And if so, is it typical enough that you've come up with, I don't know, like recurring strategies to kind of deal with it? There's no magic bullet for making putting someone at ease, but I do try to make sure that everybody feels like they're being listened to and that like if somebody has a concern, I want to address that concern and not tell them not to worry about it, for example. Right. Yeah, and I I try to be as unambiguous in my language and as clear in my explanations as I can just so that nobody is wondering like, "Oh, I wonder if he actually recorded that." You know, I try to let them know basically try to make sure that everybody is armed with as much information as I can give them about what the process is and about what, you know, what their capabilities are. Hmm. And then I try to leave all the critical decision-making to the band so that they don't feel like someone else is judging them or someone else is placing expectations on them. You know, this is via, uh, I assume trial and error on your part. Did you, did you ever try to be like, Hey man, just relax. Everything's fine. Uh, you know, when I first started making records as an engineer, I, kind of i'm sure i had a much more hands-on approach and i was by that i mean i i was trying to participate in the in the artistic direction of the record more than i do now mm. um i feel like 
that was a mistake on my part in the beginning of my tenure as an engineer in that I was, in a sense, making other people rely on my taste and my judgment. And now I feel like I'm much more of a, of a piece of furniture or a, or a piece of equipment as, as an engineer, and I just try to be as efficient and as open as I can about the process. I, th I feel like I've done a better job for people since I was able to quiet that sort of authorial impulse. But do you, do you, you, know, do you encounter musicians who look to you to be the coach, to, to try and guide them through whatever they're going through? Not explicitly, but I'm sure that there's some <laughs> some people some people harbor those fantasies. But the the main thing, though, is they got to the point where they were they came into the studio and that they had music that they wanted to record. They got to that point on their own, mm -hmm. and they got to that point by trusting their instincts. And I I want to make sure that they know that they are allowed to continue trusting themselves, and that you know. I, as an outsider, am not going to understand their music better than they do. Right. Th and that, that that might get lost on someone when they're in that. that. There is a bit of pressure when you're in a studio. You would agree. Yeah, but I, again, that, that pressure comes from external considerations. It's not being in the studio that's pressure. Hmm. It's the not wanting to let your comrades down. Right. It's the, you know, it's not wanting to embarrass yourself, not wanting to waste money, not wanting to, you know, feel like you've, embarked on an endeavor in vain like you know that's where the pressure comes from it's not the yeah. studio yeah no totally i mean but but yeah. i mean that i feel like the environment is is something that some people have trouble negotiating like that i think you're absolutely right that's where the pressure is coming from but sometimes in the room it can be hard to to lose yourself to that to the moment i think yeah and everyone comes to that everyone has those kinds of epiphanies on their own like i can't yeah. i can't make make somebody comfortable it's like if you, you know, when you step into a hot bath, it can be too hot when you first get into it. And as you ease yourself into it and you gradually accl acclimate, well, then after a while it becomes quite comfortable. And, you know, it's not that the the bath water changed. It's that you acclimated to it. That's a that's an interesting analogy. Do you ever recommend someone take a bath? Just why don't you get out of there? Just <laughs> Have a have a bath, my friend. You ever... <laughs> I, I did, I did, I did do a session with a band that were kind of philosophically opposed to cleaning themselves. <laughs> That's more, was it's a, more about bathing than than, than having yeah. a bath, I would think. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of there was a kind of a gutter punk sort of anarchist element for a while who opposed societal norms like bathing and yeah uh, and I, I met a few of those people in the studio and it, it might have might have been nicer had they bathed some yeah did you did you suggest they take a bath no 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 I let people I mean I'm happy to let people live their lives however they want that's fine with me that's that's good that's that's good of you I, I will say to, to deal with all of that now speaking of pressure you won a poker tournament. I, I wanted to ask you about this. It made the news. You won a big poker tournament, right? Yeah. I mean, it was at the World Series of Poker, which is a kind of a convention for poker players where they have many, many tournaments. And the the tournaments, if you win one of these tournaments, instead of getting a, a, a trophy, you get a bracelet. You get a little gold tone bracelet, which so they're called bracelet events. And it's something of a 
a point of honor for a poker player to be able to say that he's won a bracelet in his career. Oh, it's like a green jacket in golf or whatever? Yeah, although they only give out one green jacket a year and they give out 50s, oh, 60 okay. bracelets a year or something like that. It, back in the day, back in the 70s or the 80s when it, you know when they only gave out like 10 or 12 a year they were quite fancy the bracelets themselves were you know they were they were made of gold and they had actual jewels in them they're made by tiffany's or somebody uh-huh. uh and and now they're you know they're brass and uh, they're they're made by the company there's a company called Jostens who specialize in making oh, high yeah. school yes. high school class rings and and uh uh, high school yearbooks and things like that. Yeah, we and, have we and, have them up here or whatever. I've seen that. I've seen that name. Yeah. Yeah, like the the, the pin that says like number one sales guy, that kind of stuff. Right. That, that's, <laughs> so and now that company is responsible for making all the bracelets, and they're sort of of a quality that you would that's commensurate with that kind of regalia. So so are you wearing the bracelet now? Is the, is the bracelet something? Oh God, you, no. You, you, oh, you don't have to wear it all the time. Oh Christ, no! It's hideous. I've only worn, I've literally only worn it once. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> now I know. I, I don't think of you as a guy who's a bracelet chaser. Why? Why did you? Uh, how often do you have you participated in the World Series of Poker? First of all, well, I've gone every year since about. I, I honestly don't know when I first went. I want to say t- 2010, maybe 2008, something like that. Oh, okay, somewhere only, in there. The last ten years. Okay, I see. Um, but I go. I mean, I go every year, and I try hard every year. But I. Uh, you know, there are so many people in each of these tournaments. You know, there, some of these tournaments have thousands of people in them. And it's it's very difficult to beat that many people, not because you're beating them each individually, but just because statistically it's very hard to to outlast something that has that many uh, that many iterations, you know. Yeah. And you need a measure of luck to win one of these tournaments. And you, you also have to be you also have to play your absolute best because that you're playing against you know the literal best in the world you, you, at the yeah at the at the final table that I was at for example um there were four other there were the final table was uh eight people i want to say hmm. and there were several other people at the table who had won multiple championships including a guy who had won the main event championship and another guy that had won three stud the, the the event I played was seven card stud, and there was a guy, the guy that I was eventually heads up with, had won three stud format bracelets. Like th- he'd he'd won multiple bracelets, and three of them were in stud games. So I mean, they were these are literally, you know, expert poker players who have won events like this in the past, and who are, you know, among the very best in the game. And I had to I had to play against them. So in order to beat people like that, you need to. to Play your absolute best, and you also need to get a little lucky. And, and so, you know, with most things, you you practice. You, you just yeah. do it a bunch of times. How often do you play poker? Well, when back when the online poker was available in the U.S., I played regularly, like, you know, several times a week. I would play four significant stakes online. But online poker hasn't really been available in the U.S. for a while. So now I I only get to I can there are some local games that I play in some private games and then there's a a casino about 20 miles from here that I I go to called the Horseshoe in Hammond Indiana mm-hmm. and they have a a mixed game when I say mixed game I I mean it it's a, a game where multiple variants of poker are played in rotation Thanks for and, explaining what mixed meant in this context 
Yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not like a country club that's mixed instead of restricted. Could have been anything really at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so so there's a mixed game there that I play in, and I it works out to several times a month um, over the course of a year. But um, in a year when I'm not working as much. I would play more live, um, but my obligations at the studio and, and with the band and at home have kept me very busy this year. Right, so, so you, I, you had a tremendously busy year. You couldn't practice, if you will, playing poker as much as you would right. like. And then you go to the World Series of Poker, and then the next thing I know, Facebook posts from your friends and mine, news headlines. What did you actually – you won a significant amount of money. Is that what yeah, happened? The yeah, the first place was $106,000. Um, now, like most poker players who play a tournament schedule, I had investors in my tournament series, so I didn't get to keep all that money. I got to keep about half of it. Um, but still, like regardless, winning a big wedge of money like that makes a, a, a significant difference on my year. You know, I've used poker as a second income for a long time. Oh, see, I did and, not know that. A third income. Wouldn't it be a third income in your case, at least? Sure. Like... <laughs> the, the, my my entire existence is predicated on the idea that I'm going to be doing everything all the time. Right. So, like, I'm I'm running this business, Electrical Audio. I'm playing in a band. I'm playing cards. I'm trying to maintain a home life. You know, all of these things are going simultaneously. I'm always going to be doing all of them. If any one of them sort of recedes because I'm doing less of it, then I, I step up in the other ones, you know. So you're are you a professional poker player, Steve? No, I don't make my primary income from playing cards, but I make a significant portion of my income from playing cards. Like, if I didn't play cards, I would need to do something else to make up the difference. Are you a part-time professional poker player? Then is that <laughs> I don't know how to dis- I'm just wondering if, how you distinguish yourself. <laughs> well, it's like anything else I do. Like, the I earn a, a small salary from electrical audio. Yeah, right from running this company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also do occasional lectures and seminars and tutorials at universities and i'm i'm paid for those i get a, a an honorarium for doing those right uh i'm in a band my band tours you know five six weeks a year and we make reasonable income from those tours we've also put out records and we earn some record royalties from those i've been in other bands historically and those bands earn some royalties and i so i, I get that money i play cards and i earn a significant chunk of money from playing cards so if you stack all of these things up together then i make enough to make a living right right right. there isn't there isn't any one of them that i would say well that's my that's my profession although the thing that i do most is hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I come to Electrical Audio and I make records for other people, so I, I, I would say that principally I'm a recording engineer. Yeah, well, I just I wanted to highlight it, and I assume it's a, a, the win was a... A highlight for you this year, and I, I just oh, it's great. Yeah, I want to. I had a, I had all my asshole friends there, and <laughs> yeah, you know, I had you know a bunch of people were following along on the. There was a, a live stream of it, so there was a bunch of people following along at home, and uh, I, you know, it just feels really great to be doing something. You know, you do something again and again and again, and and you know, you. I, I had never even fantasized about winning a bracelet. I had never even thought I'd, I, I play poker for money and you can make money in a tournament without winning it. You sure. can, you know, if you place in the tournament, you make money and I'm, I'm happy with that as a result, you know? So it, it had never occurred to me that I would actually win a tournament like that. I would actually be the guy with the bracelet. It, it, I'd only ever wanted to do well and to make it, you know, worth continuing and so actually winning one was a big surprise to me, probably a bigger surprise to the people that I beat. But uh, yeah, it was very gratifying. But you go, you'll go, you go back next year? I intend to, yeah. Okay. The, there's a scheduling thing. It's like my, my band does a, an annual springtime tour um, that's sort of focused around a couple of festivals that we have been historically invited to and that are that put a nice bookend on a tour mm-hmm. where we, if, if we go over for the first of these festivals, then we can play for a week leading up to it and then play for a week between this, that festival and, this, and its sister festival then play the second festival and then come home. It's a nice uh, tidy package of a tour that we can sort of bank on every year. And it has made planning our, our year very easy. Was this Primavera? The Primavera Sound Festivals. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, we we get along great with the people that run that festival. I have a lot of respect for them, and I think they run their festival in a very honorable fashion. So I, I'm I'm happy to support it. But they have two locations. They do it in Barcelona, which is a beautiful and and fascinating city, and then they do it in Porto, Portugal, which is another beautiful, another fascinating city. So in be- and in the week in between, there's a, a we can do a week of shows in between those two, and then we can do a week of shows leading up to the first one, hmm. and that gives us a nice tidy, you know, fifteen sixteen days of of tour that we can put together every spring. Right. So, but but that overlaps with the World Series of Poker, um, such that when I finish that tour, you know, depending on the schedule of the World Series, like what events are playing, I can either fly immediately to Las Vegas to play world series events, or I can spend a little time at home, you know, doing home life maintenance and maybe conduct some sessions here and then, then go to the world series. And that all depends on the scheduling of the world series events. I don't, I'm not a particularly good no limit hold'em player. And the majority of the events at the world series are no limit hold'em. So, uh, it doesn't make sense for me to go down there and play a bunch of those events. I tend to play the events that are in games that I'm better at, like the seven card stud events, the draw poker events, the low ball events, things like that. Right. I think what you, so, the last one of the last times you were on the show, you tried to school me on poker, and it, this is all starting to sound familiar. This is uh, as much as I engage <laughs> with poker is speaking with you, or maybe following like Norm McDonald's Twitter feed, and then that, yeah. that's how I get my poker news. Yeah, Norm McDonald is hilarious. By the way, there was just a they just built a there was a, a, a there's a company called Poker Go that does online 
poker programming. And they did a, a streaming event where Norm MacDonald hosted a, a cash game. <laughs> and uh, watching him play poker made me appreciate him as a comedian. <laughs> We, I'm trying to get him on this show. I'll tell you, Steve. We we keep exchanging messages. He keeps saying certainly, and then I don't know. He he vanishes. He, he's an yeah. interesting fellow. He's a hero of mine as well. So, yeah. anyway, uh, uh, speaking of things you engage with, I know you're engaged politically, uh, based on your uh, mm. various statements, posts, and, and things. It seems to me your country may have finally turned a, a slight corner with this blue wave that occurred in November. Uh, your thought, and I'm just curious. Well, what are your thoughts on what's going on now? I, I, we've been inundated with the the pain and d- disturbing aspects of what's been going on. Yeah. But how are you feeling right now? Well, I'm. I as always, I'm cautiously optimistic. But I, I also feel like the at every juncture, people have said, "Well, this has got to be the end of it, right?" And and it hasn't been. And I'm speaking about the international embarrassment of Trump being our president. Like. Yeah. Every, yeah. Every time something else happens, you know, the sort of thinking and aware part of the country says, well, this has got to be the end of it. Right. And then we just move on to the next thing and we just incorporate the most recent scandal into our the, you know, the the new commonplace. Yeah, I, uh, I don't expect that there will be an impeachment i don't expect that trump will be removed from office by any or that he will leave office i expect him to cling to his power and the mechanisms that allow him to um accrue wealth i think i expect that he will do whatever is necessary to to do that and that the the republicans in congress will go along with it because him being in power reflects power back down to them and i don't see them giving that power up for any principle. Seems to reflect um, how they really think, too. I feel like the age of diplomacy just vanished when this guy, you know, uh, some of them would say, well, you can't say that. And then he just says it or does it. And they're like, OK, I guess we can say and do that. Let's just do that. Let's just say and do yeah. exactly what we think and feel all the time. Yeah. I mean, there was a there before Trump was elected, there was a a branch of conservatives who were the, who called themselves the never Trumpers. And they were, you know, they, they said, you know, we are conservative people. We're Republicans, but we cannot abide this man. But what it boils down to is he's actually advocated for and enacted policies that they are behind a hundred percent. They just wish that he wasn't such a a jerk. You know, they just, they, uh, they just wish that he was a little bit less uncouth about it but they're happy to torture poor people and women and they're happy to institute like the solidification of the power of the extremely wealthy and corporations like that those things make them happy they're Mm -hmm. they're not they're not disappointed in donald trump's performance as a president they just wish that he was less embarrassing and there's a there's a a conservative magazine called the weekly standard that just that just went tits up and they were sort of the, the last bastion of the never Trump conservatives. And uh, but literally every single thing that they have advocated for for years has been enacted under Trump. They're you know, they're they just made themselves irrelevant by not getting aboard his sort of personal brand. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You you intimate that there's you're a little you're cautiously optimistic. I, I think you're thought of as a 
as being a skeptical person. And, and this has come up a few times on my show recently with people about whether or not they feel like voting has efficacy. Have you ever abstained from voting? Oh, no, of course not. Hmm. Yeah, uh, voting is literally the only lever that we can push as, as citizens. So, uh, I mean, you can protest all you want, but uh, uh, unless you are yourself elected to office, and I, I should point out that this blue wave that you described has a very large number of people who were uh, called to run for office because yeah. they 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 felt that somebody had to do it and it might as well be them. That's what that's um, what's encouraging to me is that many members of this uh, so-called blue wave are are grassroots organizers. They they really yeah. seem to know what's what to do and and now they're in a position of power to potentially do it. And if they can influence a Democratic majority and influence the, the Democratic political um, hierarchy to embrace the things that brought them into office, like the, to embrace the small donor policy rather than, you know, trying to, to get their chunk of the corporate largesse, then, then I, I think that there is a, a very real chance that we will see some substantial social changes that will be enacted by a Democratic majority and things like an increased federal minimum wage, um, potential national health care. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's a, despite how popular it is, that's going to be a much bigger fight than anyone is giving it credit for. Just the fact that everyone wants it doesn't mean that the pharmaceutical companies and the, the big insurance companies won't do everything they can to scuttle it. And if they can't scuttle it on a federal level, they'll try to put up state stateside obstacles and yeah it's it's going to be an, an enormous fight but i i believe that we have the potential to actually achieve it at some point it it might take another 20 years but i think they, i think we can do it but there is potential for genuine criminal justice reform mm -hmm. genuine voting rights reform all of that is predicated on the democratic the institutionalized democratic leadership listening to the rank-and-file Democrat voters and taking seriously this new wave of young, largely working-class or middle-class mm -hmm. um, elected officials, large, you know, and a lot of them women and women of color, which is, you know, a unique moment in our history. I mean, I appreciate your perspective on that, and I, I am heartened to hear that you are optimistic as well. And, and speaking of effective positive change, you alluded to this earlier, and I, I did want to talk about the Letters to Santa program and Poverty Alleviation Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I believe two initiatives that uh, uh, were, were brought into being by your wife, Heather Winna, um, more or less. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely correct. Yes. Heather has been the—she's been the driving force behind— First, the Letters to Santa program, which started completely independent of any anything else and uh, then sort of grew through partnership with the Second City Theater in Chicago and the um, incredible donation of time and energy of Jeff Tweedy from the band Wilco, who has generously donated his time and his name uh, to help with the fundraising effort. The idea is that we generate a bunch of money through donation and then get that money into the hands of desperately poor people in Chicago. And we do it on Christmas because that's one day that people can be reliably expected to be home. So we initially we got the names for the families by going to the post office and 
going through letters that were addressed to Santa Claus, and mm -hmm. that's where the program got its name. The post office stopped letting individual people go through letters addressed to Santa a few years ago, and so we had to find another mechanism to find needy families, and we found some non-governmental uh, aid organizations, The first the Jane Addams Hull House, which was a, a social services organization that had been running for over 100 years. The Jane Addams Hull House closed down, and then we started working with a, uh, the Onward Neighborhood House in right. Chicago, and, and they're the organization we still still work with. Um, this is a, a neighborhood group, like an umbrella uh, organization that uh, works with different neighborhoods, is that right? Yes, they have offices in various parts of the city. They work with low-income and poor households, and they have daycare services and uh, preschool, and they have adult education programs. But um, and what what we like about them is that they are they don't discriminate uh, in any fashion uh, who they they're willing to help. So people who have needs, regardless of whether they are involved in any governmental programs or not, or, you know, regardless of their documentation status or anything, anything like that can get help through Onward Neighborhood House. And then we can find them and then we can di bring direct aid to them. The one of the principles of the Letters to Santa program from the beginning was that every single dollar that's donated should get into the hands of a poor family. Yep. That is, the, the the overhead does not come out of the donations. The donations go to the the families. Mm -hmm. um, for the longest time, we just did everything, you know, informally. Um, people would donate their time. We would use our home. Uh, we would use whatever physical space was available to take care of whatever organizing or storage or you know delivery that sort of thing yeah and whatever, every, needed, every, whatever needed to be done I assume and, and everything would be donated yeah um, Heather organized some of the sort of perennial donors into uh, um, a charity a formal charity called poverty alleviation Chicago uh, which she now runs and there are a couple of women that that work with her Val Badurtha and Holly Lewis and they do the organizational and outreach work, and they do all the bookkeeping and everything, so that the the formal charity is supported by individual donors, and then the money that's collected on behalf of the families can still 100% go directly to the families. It's a remarkable thing, and from what I understand, it's raised uh, just over $2 million thus far. Uh yeah, we've been doing it for a long time, so the you know the law of large numbers applies. But initially, you know, we we would raise a thousand or so dollars in the first couple of iterations, and we could help you know a family or a couple of families. And then as it got bigger, um, we started to be able to help the families to a much more significant degree, and we had larger and larger numbers of families. This year, we're going to do fifteen families, and. Um, it now works out to every year we raise over a hundred thousand dollars. So now, like I say, it's it's truly truly remarkable. And and one thing that I'm often heartened by when I hear about initiatives like this is them similar things happening in different communities uh, outside, maybe of your state. Maybe people hear of such a thing and they try to replicate it in some way. Have you heard of this, or, or has this spawned other people to do something similar? 
Yes, the um, I know independently of Letters to Santa, there have been other similar like money drives and direct poverty alleviation done in other cities in North America and in Glenn Hansard of the band The Frames and uh, Swell Season. Uh, he did a a benefit show and raised money for poor families in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and there are events to raise money either for a, a similar or for the same cause in Los Angeles every year as well. Cool. No, I, I, I think that's great. I, I, I hope that gives you some pause too, to know that you and, and Heather might be involved in something that is inspiring other people. Well, it's the best thing that I get to do every year. You know, I don't, I, I don't go out of my way to talk about it um, because I, I feel like the the important thing is that people are are getting help. People, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but the the more important thing is that there is an extraordinary need. Like the the small number of families that we help every year is not a drop in the bucket. There are there are so many families in need, and. I, I feel like what what we're doing is not the bare minimum, but it, it it feels insufficient. And I feel like that's one of the things that makes forces me into a position of hope about greater social change and greater responsibility mm -hmm. on the on the part of people who have uh, money and resources to share and to make the lives easier make people's lives easier who are at the moment under dire circumstances well it's like i say i i, I think it's uh it's commendable i appreciate what you're saying too about not wanting to uh get into any kind of self-aggrandizement about it or, or but i do think it's important to to t touch upon and we are running out of time and i want to touch upon a few other things that occurred to me about this year and you uh terraform your band shellac of North America's album uh, that you guys put out a record called Terraform uh, 20 years ago this year, mm -hmm. and that record is uh, significant for me. Did you guys acknowledge or celebrate this milestone in any way? Uh, no. I mean, it, for, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that that record meant something to you. That's flattering in a sort of a basic way. Um, but when we did do a... Um, we don't really know when to celebrate the anniversary of the band forming. So we know it's somewhere around 1993. So we had a, um, so this is probably our 25th anniversary somewhere in here. Goodness. Congratulations but, on that too, if I might say. But we did have a, a 20th anniversary um, series of shows in Chicago. And that's as close as we've come to, marking any kind of a milestone within within the band there's a lot of this going on these days uh you know just chronicling the anniversary of something <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh sometimes i think it's to move units and sometimes i think it's just like oh lord we've been doing this this long uh you it don't... is it is shocking when you realize that you've been doing something for so for a long period of time a long enough period of time that it's you know like a uh, you know, sort of a historical amount of time. Well, it is kind of, it is shocking, but it's also gratifying to know that you can come up with a core set of ideas and just, if you stick to them, 
then and don't allow anybody to dissuade you, then you can still have the same dumb ideas 25 <laughs> years later. Well, it seems to me that Terraform does mark a significant, I don't want to say it's a sea change, but it, it's a way, the way shellac records began to sound seems to me anyway to have shifted when Terraform came out. The early singles and uh, the album, the proper album that preceded it at Action Park, I find them to be kind of gritty. Uh, the tone of the instruments and the mixes all mm -hmm. a little bit grittier. Uh, and, and to generalize, I find that from Terraform onward, yeah, my ear is relatively untrained. I listen to lots of music, but it does seem to me that the records that followed Terraform, Terraform and onward, the records feature more separation and clarity in the mixes and even relatively cleaner tones among your you and Bob's bass in particular, your guitar, Bob's bass. Uh, to your recollection, was there anything about creating Terraform that felt like a distinctive departure from what you'd made together beforehand? Not really. I mean, I... Do you see, I, do you see where I'm coming from a little bit? I think so, but I also feel like when we started the band, we had a core set of ideas that we wanted to pursue, and that core set of ideas included things like minimalism and harmonic simplicity, I think, or uh, I, I think that even that is overstating it. I think that might be even hmm. too 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 much of an idea, um, but we did have a kind of a way that we wanted to proceed with just the three of us and the music that we've made at any juncture is just the music that is interested or engaged us at the moment. And I, I don't think that we've ever spoken about how we should proceed as a band. We've just noticed in retrospect that that's how we did proceed. Yeah, sure. Do you, do you see that distinction that I'm making between uh, uh, a post-terraform world <laughs> for shellac <laughs> uh, uh, among the records. I, I I take I I take your observation seriously, and I believe you that there that there is some thread of continuity there that you could follow. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I, I've never thought of it that way myself. Okay. Okay. Well, for some listeners, like when they hear a song, it, like an older song, maybe it brings them back to a a time and place in their lives uh, emotionally. And I'm curious, when you're playing a song from Terraform at a shellac show in the year 2018, are you ever transported back emotionally to the time in your life when that piece was coming together? Is it like a visceral memory, memory jog of any kind to play an older song for you? Uh, man, I... I hate to keep shooting you down like this, but I'm going to say no. This is, this, I, this, is not, this is not shooting me down. These are just questions that occurred to me, yeah. and, and the answer is there's I no feel, right or wrong answer, I don't think. Maybe the okay. question is, are you, saying, are you saying, Steve, that my question is wrong? The premise of these questions are wrong? I, I guess what I'm saying is that <laughs> whenever we're playing, it, it feels like the same experience when I'm playing with Bob and Todd now Yes, that it felt like when I— played with them 25 years ago it feels like the same experience it feels like we're conducting another run of the same experiment and i don't know how to to articulate it better than that i don't feel like the the music that we're making the the particular titular songs that we're making at any given era are as important as the practice of playing right and the the songs that we're playing at the moment are just a vehicle for us to continue playing. I see. Time is just almost a passenger in this ride. <laughs> it doesn't really <laughs> matter to you that the years are going by or whatever. It's just... No, I mean, I, I do feel 
the physical wear on you know the, the the wear on myself on my on my person on my yeah attention span on my physical dexterity of you know of the effects of aging I'm aware of and I I feel them but uh I the experience of playing with Bob and Todd has it's just seems consistent and familiar over the last 25 years it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like there are significant chapters in our existence okay. i feel like hmm. i feel like we're doing the same thing we've always done okay well speaking of time and chapters and i don't mean to keep doing this but five years ago you and i engaged in a very comprehensive conversation about the 20th anniversary of the release of the nirvana album in utero and your role in making it and and, and you know for what it's worth that remains one of the most significant episodes of this podcast this show but i i always regretted not asking you about one particular thing and okay. it, it's now the 25th anniversary of In Utero. Uh, okay. And I, I just want to ask you one thing. My in, in Michael Azarad's book, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana, you're quoted as saying that Dave Grohl's drumming made you kind of appreciate Nirvana maybe more than you had previously. Is, is that still accurate? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I don't know that it... I don't know that it was specifically the drumming. I do I do remember thinking that Dave Grohl... I ha- he had a reputation of being a very good drummer, I thought, and then seeing him in action, I felt like he was underrated. I think he's a phenomenal drummer. I think he's like a, a, a generationally great drummer. I know he doesn't play drums that much anymore, but when he does, whenever he does, he's still like, he, does, he never fails to impress me with his drumming. Okay. All right. So that stands. But the thing I didn't ask you about, what I wanted to ask you about, was actually Kurt Cobain's singing. Up to making yeah. in utero, and, in, and certainly subsequently, you've worked with many incredible singers. But in terms mm-hmm. of what he could do with his voice as a singer, did Kurt distinguish himself to you? Did he stand out? He had a distinctive voice, and he and he had good control of it. I uh, and his voice had a had a, a nice emotive quality to it. Um, but I, from a technical standpoint, I don't know that he's that great of a singer. You know, <laughs> his his. His singing suited his music, and it suited his expression, and that counts for way more than, you know, operatic ability. Well, I guess I'm thinking more about his screaming. I just wonder if he he thought much. Uh, did he do much to prep to scream in that way? Like, there's just such a power to his singing that I, I, lots of people have tried to copy it, as you yeah. know, and they can't do it. I just don't think they right. can do it, and that's right. why I just it's just a thing I've always thought. Like I, I about our talk the last time, I'm like I didn't really ask. If that stood out for you as as the recording engineer, like holy lord, this guy's got a—he's really powerful when he gets up on that mic. Yeah, no, there was nothing special about the recording that you know he that, that I've noticed that is true of several of the the most powerful singers I've worked on is that they don't they don't need to do anything to unpack their voice; it just comes ready made. Hmm. I, I did a, the very first time I did a session with Robin Zander from Cheap Trick. Um, it was in the dead of winter at a studio in upstate New York. And uh, the band had been in the previous day and recorded the backing tracks for a couple of songs for a single. And he had played on one of those, but he didn't do any singing. Didn't There, was, there wasn't even a guide vocal done. Mm-hmm. And so it was time for him to come and do his lead vocal the next morning. And he walked in out of the cold. He was wearing this sort of a fuzzy Russian hat and it had snow on it. And uh, I'd set up, you know, I'd asked him the previous day what he wanted set up for a microphone. And also I'd set up the microphone that he wanted to to use. And 
he literally dusted he brushed the snow off of his shoulders he had, didn't even take off <laughs> didn't even take off his fuzzy hat or his coat and he walked up to the microphone lit a cigarette and then sang an unbelievably powerful vocal take huh. you know it it there's just a, a a thing that great vocalists have where they they bring it with them and they know how to do it you can take a mediocre vocalist and coach him and train him and they can do a bunch of exercises and they can get a little bit more control over their voice and they can sing more comfortably or they can, uh, you know, maybe their hip pitch is slightly better. Like there are little academic things yeah, that, yeah. Pe- that, that people can learn about singing in the same way that you can learn different things about any instrument, right? But when it comes to the personality element and the emotive quality the the emotional content and the the sort of subtleties of inflection and intensity all of that stuff is built in like people they either have that or they don't so are you saying similar you're saying kurt had that he just got up and did it and it was done yeah yeah okay that's fair i just i you know i i for once for some reason my youtube algorithm right now is lots of nirvana live footage i've never seen before so mm-hmm. it knows me a little bit. It's it's on my mind for some reason, and so it occurred to me that it just I'm, I never asked you these questions, so I appreciate it. Well, finally, I, I, I want to look towards the future a little bit. We've this is like the Christmas Carol. We've done <laughs> <laughs> the other stuff. Uh, is there new shellac music coming out? Have you guys been working on new songs? We just did a rehearsal weekend. We've got um, eight or nine new songs that we're we've been working on. We've been playing three of them on tour on recent tours last couple of years and we'll probably sprinkle the remainder in live sets um over the course of the next year or so i i i'm terrible at predicting when we will make another record i know that we have another we have the capacity to make another record and so it'll happen eventually but i i'm terrible at predicting when it will happen i know that we have We've already done some recording uh, of the new material. Oh, okay. Um, that's that's and, that's telling in itself. Yeah, and you know, early indications are that we that we're still happy with it all. So, um, but we 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 like to record our music in an early iteration, like in its early in its gestation period, so that um, we get to hear the ideas in a, a sort of a final form, final realized form, and then we also like to let those songs evolve over live sets for a while so often often they won't get recorded for a few years after we've written them Mm -hmm. um, because you know the practice of playing them can change the way we want them to to sound and and sometimes we'll record them very early to get a, a snapshot of them and then record them again after they've matured on tour and uh it's a kind of an even split as to which ones have been better over the years Okay. Well, I mean, that's that's cool. That's good to know as a fan. I'm, as you know, I'm a big fan of that band, so that's great. Uh, any Thank you. Any reissues or significant uh, other releases related to your your work or your bands? There's a uh, Appeal Sessions record that's being released that is all of our, our collected Peel Sessions. Shellac. And that, wow. Yeah. And there's a, there's a compilation album of our early singles, which are now becoming hard to find now, um, now wait comp- a minute now wait a hang on a second here steve i don't want to take any credit here but i actually broached this exact topic with you 
however many years ago that we spoke about it, I said, are you going to do anything? All of these things are hard to find. People are selling them on Discogs for hundreds and thousands of dollars or something. And you hmm. said, I don't know. Well, well who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, so part of the one of the principles of the band is that we didn't ever want to do anything that could be where we would feel like we were uh, milking our audience. Like we, we didn't want to do anything where we didn't want to repackage stuff and sell it again or reissue stuff and sell it again for reasons that were not transparent and uh, obviously necessary. And one of the, one of the ways that we can do that is by making sure that all of our stuff stays in print all the time. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that a lot, some of our early, a lot of our early stuff was on labels that, uh, like the odds and odds and ends, ended up being on compilation albums or on singles from labels that have gone under or sort of one-off special releases for things, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that stuff just isn't available. And we started to feel bad that we didn't do something to make it available. Mm-hmm. So we've decided to collect all of that stuff together. So does, um, does this include like the ACDC comp or uh, like the cover you did of uh, jailbreak and all that kind of stuff? Yes. For the moment. <laughs> oh, right. There might be some right stuff going on there. Probably. I no. Guess. Oh, uh, that sort of stuff is very easy to, neg- to navigate. Oh, the, the only thing I'm, con- the only thing I'm concerned about is that we haven't actually done the final cut for any of this. Oh, I see. So, okay. so there's a possibility that somebody will say, you know, I'm not that into this one. Let's skip that. Or somebody will oh, say, okay, let, you know, so I, I, I would, I would like it to be comprehensive. I think it likely will be comprehensive, but I, uh, I think the, the smartest thing to do is to wait until it comes out and then I'll know. <laughs> I see. Okay. No, that, that's fair. So did you say there's two, like one is going to be the BBC, the appeal sessions and the other would be the early singles. We've been working on both of those records in the background for a while now, okay. like compiling the, the Peel sessions and compiling the uh, harder to find one-off material from the band. Wow, I, I had no idea. That's that's amazing. That's great. Um, well, we don't. We're not a publicity engine. We don't do a lot of advance notice of stuff. Steve, people talk. People talk about stuff. <laughs> you know, we all talk. We say, "Hey, what?" The, someone knows something, and then they. They share it. That's just the way it works. You know about the internet. We talked about it about an hour ago. Uh, sure. <laughs> the, the only thing I will ask then, because it's uh, it's germane, I suppose, the the futurist, this Friends mm-hmm. of Shellac record, which continues to sell for hundreds and hundreds of dollars, very limited run, uh, you know, 700 odd copies. People start mm-hmm. have been circulating those. That's Is that on the table for a re- reissue? No. I mean, we made that record for our friends and that was, we're happy with that. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that since this is, like I say, this is big news. All right. Well, Steve, I, I I can't thank you enough for being back on this show. It occurred to me that you've been on the show uh, at least once a year. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I imagine at some point you puzzle, why does this man keep calling me and asking me to talk? But I, I hope you know it uh, is significant for me. I always come away learning things, and uh, it means something oh. to me if that means anything to you. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. All right. Well, is there normally I go out on a song by my guest? Uh, we we have no new record. We have nothing to to point to in terms. And you're not a promotional guy. But is there a shellac song that I can play for people? Is there something you uh, would recommend? In fact, is it? I mean, does it have to be a shellac song? 
Well, based on the fact that I, I'm talking to you and I have permission potentially from you on the record, uh, it would be best if it were a song that you authored in some way. Hmm. What were you going to do? Where, 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 did you, where did your mind wander there? What were you, ACDC or something? <laughs> no. No, I mean, I've... Yeah, I've been... I've been kind of pondering... Uh, I've, I've been listening to some other music at home, that's all. Oh, well, well, go ahead. Tell me what it is. That might be that might be interesting in itself. Well, there's a there's a composer named Conlon Nancaro that I'm very fond of. I see. C-O-N-L-A-N-N-A-N-C-A-R-R-O-W. Conlon Nancaro. I encourage your listeners to look up his music. Okay. He composed exclusively for the player piano. And uh, some of his studies for player piano are... Uh, mesmerizing and bizarre and i i feel like I, I got into conversation about him a couple of weeks ago and i started listening to his music more and i feel like it's just some of the most insane and most charming music if especially given the, the circumstances under which it was made he was kind of exiled from u.s academia in the 50, 40s and 50s for being um a, a suspected communist and so he did almost all of his work in Mexico, um, despite being an American. Hmm. And, and uh, he composed for player pianos, which were then in residence in his studio. And <laughs> that's where all of his music occurred. I see. I see. <laughs> in, in his studio. So uh, there's a kind of a her hermetic quality to his music that uh, I... I personally find charming just like the fact that he buried himself and sequestered himself in his music and but created it diligently for decades and i'm i'm very fond fond of it so if if you could play <laughs> one of his one of his studies for the player piano then i i would consider that uh i would consider that a a, a nice gesture let me ask you this steve this fellow or members of his estate do they seem particularly litigious do they seem like they might be upset that a song of Connor's was uh, circulating at the end of a hour and a half long interview with you. I can't imagine, well, but his name is Conlon Nancaro. C -O -N -L -A -N. Oh, Conlon. Conlon. I apologize. Yeah. I already see. I, I'm. It's this fine. is new. New to me. All right. Well, sure. Is there a particular piece you have in mind? There. Are, most of his pieces are are named study for player for player piano, and I want to say that number twenty two. Is one one I was listening to the other day. It was quite good. Okay, but that's my, that's to, my lucky number, by the way. Twenty two. Feel free to audition some of them, and maybe if you have a favorite number or if you have a favorite piece, you can play that one. Okay, now let's go with let's just go with this. And if something happens to me because of this, it's on you. How about that? This <laughs> okay. is uh, so. What is it called? It's uh, piano. Conlon and Caro study for player piano number twenty two. Number twenty two. Here it is, uh, Steve. Uh, again, thank you for your time, and best of luck with everything going forward. No sweat.
Very, very special thanks again to Steve Albini for returning to this show. This was the 453rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on numerous other platforms as well, including Audio Boom and some other things. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for on any of those platforms, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my site, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook while Facebook is still in existence. You can also follow us on Twitter at Vish Creative or Vishkana. Not sure how Twitter got out of I thought Twitter would go down first, frankly. I know I keep talking about these things at the end of the show, but I'm surprised Twitter is doing better than Facebook somehow. You know what I mean? Just whatever. Anyway, yeah, at Vish Creative or at Vishkana. You can listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at cfru.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. It really depends on that. And so if you can, please make a... It could be whatever you want, a dollar a month, two dollars a month, five dollars a month, six dollars a month, a hundred thousand dollars a month. Whatever you can afford... Please, patreon.com slash creative control. Once again, would like to thank the in-kind support I received for this show uh, from the likes of Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts. Also, my friend Jim Guthrie loans me one of his songs every week. Thank you, Jim, for, for that. And you should go to jimguthrie.org to learn more about Jim and his music. Finally, thank you very much for listening to this show uh, in 2018 and all the years leading up to it. Uh, I have some plans to slow things down a little bit in the coming uh, years, uh, year, (laughs) and the years to come. Just a little bit. It's been twice a week, uh, two episodes a week. I might slow things down. That's the plan. And uh, I'll keep you in the loop about that. But don't be alarmed if uh, episodes aren't coming as regularly as they used to. Uh, I still want to do the show. It's just uh, I got to slow it down a little bit. But uh, all this to say, thank you very much for listening to the show and telling your friends to listen to the show and subscribing to uh, the podcast on whatever platform you use. It means a lot, and I will keep going for as long as I possibly can. I will talk to you very, very soon. Bye for now. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 